Welcome to CoreCentric Conversations, the podcast dedicated to sharing stories of procurement and finance transformation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of CoreCentric Conversations on the current state of CFO investments in digitization. I'm Kelly Barner, and I'll be your host for this podcast. CoreCentric recently sponsored a study by Payments on how CFOs are prioritizing digital payments to maximize efficiency. To get insight into the key findings, today I'm joined by Matt Clark, President and Chief Operating Officer of CoreCentric. Matt is responsible for setting and steering CoreCentric's strategic vision, along with its mission of empowering businesses to do more. His leadership has led to a substantial increase in employees, revenue, and the growing presence of the company in the B2B fintech space. Since the beginning of 2018, Matt has guided the company through three acquisitions that position CoreCentric as a global leader in source-to-pay and order-to-cash solutions. Matt is an advisor and guest lecturer for the University of Maryland's Entrepreneurship and Innovation Program and is an active member of Vistage Chief Executive Group, which provides peer-to-peer mentoring for DC area business leaders. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. Looking forward to it. Sure. Now, we're going to start off this conversation with an extreme understatement. The last few years have brought so many extreme changes to how businesses operate. So if we try to sort of level set and focus everybody around where we are today, how would you describe the current state of finance digitization? Yeah, I think it's, you know, um, as you mentioned, the last uh, few years have really um, provided that kind of level of disruption that often leads to, you know, action being taken. So I think if you kind of look, you know, pre-COVID versus post-COVID, um, is kind of the dimension that I would, you know, I, I would frame it up in. You know, pre-COVID, I think there was a lot of talk around, you know, the need to digitize on a more kind of broad-based perspective, and especially when it re- relates to, you know, kind of finance and accounting uh, capabilities. COVID put that squarely at the top of the list, uh, especially for CFOs. Uh, you know, just going through that whole situation where, you know, uh, your back office was now pushed out to, you know, thousands of micro offices, uh, you know, distributed workforce, uh, and and the status quo, you know, quickly became apparent was not going to be what was going to kind of carry the day. And so it's been, you know, our experience that um, this has become a, a major priority. Uh, companies know that there's work to be done. Uh, you know, there's different levels of sophistication that exist, you know, kind of across the landscape, but you know, everybody is, you know, very focused on, you know, doing what they've got to do to get to that, you know, level of digitization and automation um, that is going to answer the needs of, of the conditions that are that are currently taking place. Well, and it's interesting to look at that divide, sort of the pre-COVID world and post-COVID, because certainly, and, and not all of it actually had anything to do with COVID, but sort of on top of that period of uncertainty, we had an awful lot of global supply chain disruptions, some of which were connected, some of which were not. But we rolled right off of those into economic concerns. And so we haven't really been able to catch our breaths at all. 
Now we've got inflation at historic highs and interest rates continuing to climb, which certainly factors into this conversation. How do you think the combination of all of these different factors comes together to influence the CFO's decision-making process, specifically with regard to making digital investments? Yeah, I think you're spot on. Um, it's been really one thing after another for for business leaders, and um, the hits just keep on coming. Yeah, you know, I think I think back to you know we're we're fortunate enough that we've been in business for you know 25 plus years, so we've seen you know not cycles that look identical to this, but we've been through some some rough cycles. If you go back to kind of the 08 09 timeframe, you know, kind of last real um, you know last real recession that we've experienced as as business leaders. You know, I see some of those similar dynamics in play here with the series of events that you laid out there and the series of conditions that have come about where, you know, I think the status quo uh, gets kind of accepted to a certain extent, especially when times are good. You know, there's that uh, if it isn't broke, don't fix it mentality that that is natural for uh, us as humans to have. But then when you, um, you know, when you think about, you know, what's transpired uh, and what that does uh, psychologically to, to business leaders, they're sitting there saying, okay, uh, the status quo isn't going to cut it. And, you know, especially now as we're getting into, you know, even more kind of choppy waters, you know, the the CFOs are sitting there, especially saying, I- I've got to do more with less, you know, the expectations about what uh, folks are going to deliver is not getting uh, lower, the bar's not getting lower, it's actually being raised. But at the same time, you know, being told, you know, you got to do that with, with less people. And the only way to do that is to, you know, digitize, automate, and do the things that are best practice uh, to kind of deal with the conditions that are that are in front of us here. And one of the things that really does make this interesting is if we wanted, we could have a high-level conversation about how all of these different macro conditions and big picture challenges affect all CFOs the same. And yet there are some industries or verticals where if we look at them, they are dealing either with a more nuanced challenge or an additional challenge in addition to all of these macro things that impact everybody. And so I'm wondering to what extent are the specific digital investments made by each CFO influenced by the industry that they happen to work in? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think it's it's highly influential from a couple different perspectives. Uh, one would be, you know, when you're in a, uh, you know, when you're in a given industry, you know, you tend to do, um, you, know, you tend to do business with the same trading partners, for lack of a better term. And so you get measured, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, the sell side of B2B and how you're, you know, how you're in, how you're invoicing your clients, how you're getting paid by your clients and how all that works, or whether you're on the buy side of B2B and, you're trying to figure out, you know, again, how you're going to interact with your suppliers from a, you know, purchase order invoice payment perspective. So there becomes kind of a standard that gets set because, you know, whether you're uh, a buyer or a supplier, the entities that are on the other end of the equation, you know, are seeing your peers and how they're doing business. And you start to get, you know, kind of a reputation. Are, are you an easy business, are you easy company to do business with? Are you difficult? And you know, that becomes, you know, a threat to a business because if you're in that bucket of not easy to do business with, you know, that's becoming more and more of an evaluation criteria for, you know, companies when they're trying to decide who to do business with. It's, you know, it's always going to be price is an important factor, but, you know, more and more of this whole concept of, you know, kind of total cost of ownership, you know, when you factor in, you know, exceptions and things of that nature that take place, 
that are being evaluated and are being used to make decisions on, you know, who's going to do business uh, with who. So that whole dynamic of kind of, you know, that peer concept and that competitive kind of uh, environment, you know, within a given industry really, you know, really drives, um, you know, some of that dynamic. And then you also just have, you know, in certain industries, different dynamics that might not exist in other industries. You know, you get into like manufacturing, right? You know, very, um, you know, highly dispersed in terms of, you know, where business is getting done, you know, high volumes of transactions, you know, a lot of uh, situations where if things aren't optimized, you know, it gets magnified and, and really has a, a major impact because of just, you know, kind of the pure, you know, volume that exists. Uh, you could say the same thing in, uh, you know, if you look into healthcare, for example, uh, it's a very, you know, kind of broken, uh, frictionful environment yeah. in terms of, you know, how uh, suppliers and hospital networks do business. So, you know, there's the industry dynamics that, that, that play into it. And then there's kind of the competitive dynamics within given industries that are certainly a factor. Well, and it's interesting because I think for a long time, most companies and most leaders, regardless of the functional position they held within the company, would say, you know, we do our best to be a customer of choice. We try to be a good partner to our suppliers. And yet it takes something like what we've been through over the last couple of years to sort of level set and find it how well you're actually doing. Um, and someone had pointed out to me relatively early in the pandemic, this is not the time to make new friends, yeah. right? So if you if you had good, solid, existing, mutually respectful partnerships, you had a competitive advantage, in fact, over somebody else that didn't. And in some cases, those companies thought they had better, more reliable partnerships than in fact they did. Um, and if it, it's, it's always the same answer. If you want to say to somebody, okay, how can we have better partnerships with our suppliers? It almost always comes down to how they get paid. And so the CFO plays an important role in those relationships. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's been a unique dynamic that that took place, uh, especially with the supply chain issues. You know, typically we, we think, you know, the buyer has all the power and sometimes the buyers act like they have all the power. <laughs> but, you know, this <laughs> this dynamic was different in that, you know, once you start to have supply chain issues, there's only, you know, so much a given supplier can um, do business wise just based on supply, uh, supply chain availability. And so they started to say, OK, who are my best partners? And that's where I'm going to focus, you know, my limited supply on. And so that balancing has taken place in this, in this particular scenario where, you know, that pendulum kind of swung in terms of leverage back to the supplier side. But, you know, you're, you're a hundred percent accurate that, you know, the payments is, you know, where the, where the rubber meets the road yes. uh, for lack of a better term, because, you know, you inherently always have friction when it comes to two parties that's trying to decide, you know, what the right payment strategy is for a relationship. And it comes in, you know, two dimensions. One is, you know, what is the payment modality? You know, how is a payment going to be made? Is it going to be made via check, via ACH, via virtual credit card? And then payment timing, you know, the classic push-pull of, you know, suppliers want to be paid faster. Um, buyers want to want to pay slower to, to maximize cash flow. So that's where you tend to get that, you know, kind of uh, staring contest. And, you know, it's really you know, up to, you know, CFOs to have that right strategy that's going to, you know, keep those uh, relationships strong and have a have a viewpoint of not only what's best for, you know, your own company, but what's best for the health of the relationship here. You know, that's kind of where things, you know, in the payment space got a little bit, you know, one-sided where you had, you know, customers that had big sticks 
going to suppliers and saying, I want you to take a virtual credit card, even though it's a you know, one-off process for you to process it, even though you know, there might be fees associated with it, but you know, I'm your customer and you, you're going to do what I, I want you to do. And you're seeing more of a kind of you know, balance there where suppliers you know, start to push back a little bit and say, um, you know, this has to be a little more of a, an even trade-off here. What am I getting? How am I benefiting? And that's where you know, having folks you know, like a core centric, like ourselves, kind of sitting in between and being able to kind of play traffic cop, make sure, you know, values being delivered on both sides of that equation. And that's how, you know, that's how you get to a happy place from a, you know, from a payments perspective. Absolutely. Now, based on that perspective, there are actually a couple of takeaways that jumped out at me specifically from the report. And I find it interesting that the thing that they have in common seems to be the role of time. Um, so as much as digital has been the way for a long time, we're still continuing to learn and evolve. And I'd be curious from your perspective, whether you have seen any digital investments made in finance or by finance that have already sort of run their course and been discontinued because they didn't deliver the results that were required or they just didn't work well in a real kind of setting. Has anything already been phased out on this front? I don't know that I would say it's been phased out. I think more uh, what I've seen is uh, the, the trend of people taking a very kind of myopic view uh, and taking a myopic view on initiatives when they become, you know, almost a, a dire situation or something that, you know, gets made a priority, uh, go out and kind of look at it in a very kind of, you know, point solution orientation and then find out, okay, well, just, you know, applying technology or applying a specific model to a specific set of, of transactions might not be, you know, the right way to do it. And so what we're seeing is a more strategic big picture view being taken versus, you know, kind of the trend and the way the market was conditioned historically, which is, okay, I have this myopic problem. Let me go find the myopic solution to yeah, exactly. match that myopic problem. So I'd say what's been more probably phased out is kind of taking this mentality of, okay, I'm just going to keep piling on, you know, point solutions on top of point solutions yeah. that I've already had. Let's take a step back and look at kind of what second generation finance and accounting transformation looks like. And let's put a strategy together that we might not implement all at once, but at least we've got kind of a roadmap and a big picture that we're working towards as we start to figure out what our next steps are uh, from a you know kind of uh, finance and accounting digitization strategy. Well, absolutely, because certainly you can overly focus, right, and fix this one teeny tiny little problem that actually breaks plenty of things elsewhere. And the other way I think that plays out interestingly is also in terms of sort of short term versus longer term. You know, what am I doing today or six months from now because it's simply what my company needs in order to continue operation versus what is my longer term point of view and what strategies and investments am I working on in order to position the entire company for growth? Um, are there any finance specific digital investments that you've seen that really position the whole company to succeed on that longer term plane? I think it's all about really thinking with the end in mind uh, and thinking about the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. I think there's you know, often uh, not enough uh, you know, thought goes into, okay, what are the outcomes that are actually trying to be achieved versus what am I doing just because I think people are telling me I need to do that? And so when you have that, you know, that outcome driven mindset, you know, you get to these big needle moving outcomes like, OK, we want to 
free up cash flow so that we can um, build new warehouses or we want to free up cash flow because we want to reinvest in this initiative or that initiative. And it starts with those kind of big strategic goals and then working back. And so the companies that I've seen be the most successful are the ones that have a very clear view of where they're going, what outcomes are trying to achieve, and then working backwards you know, from that to say, okay, if my goal out of all these things that I'm doing is to improve cash flow, let me walk it backwards from there and align, you know, the capabilities and the, the strategies, you know, to getting to that ultimate goal. Well, and I think that's a much harder thing than it sounds like, right? You know, you talk about having that vision and having that goal and knowing what priority order things go in. It's deceptively simple sounding because if it were easy, everyone would truthfully do it. But instead, yeah. that tends to be the kind of thing that allows a company to take a market leading position and certainly finance and their use of working capital and their investments in digital. That is all part of that big picture that allows them to not only set the company up to step into that position, but to really hold on to it once they've gotten it. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it takes a bit of courage. Um, you know, it's, sure it's, it's the, you know, the, the risk that you take of, okay, you could continue with the status quo. Um, and, you know, I think often what I, you know, when I have conversations with CFOs, you know, it's very easy to identify the risks of change and the, you know, the perceived or inherent risks that come from making a change or, or pivoting, but not enough thought is put into what is the risk of perpetuating the status quo? And that's something that, you know, folks don't, I think, put enough attention to. It's like, you know, the status quo is kind of put forth as the safe alternative. But when you step back and you look at it and you say, OK, uh, am I frustrating my suppliers? Am I frustrating my customers? What is that impact going to be if this continues, you know, to our ability to grow and to thrive as a business? And when you start to think of it in those terms, you, you quickly come to the realization that, you know, the status quo is just as risky, if not more risky than, you know, the, the change that maybe is trying to be, um, you know, implemented or, or being contemplated from a strategic perspective. And if the idea of the status quo being risky doesn't motivate people to embrace change and innovate, then I'd be willing to bet that nothing will. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Matt, thank you so much for taking this time to discuss your point of view and the report with me. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Enjoyed it. And thank you as well to everyone who listened in today. Please tune in to our next CoreCentric conversation for more insight into the topics of most importance to spend management professionals. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining this CoreCentric conversation, the podcast dedicated to sharing stories of procurement and finance transformation. We hope you found our discussion useful. With each episode, it's our goal to give you insight on how to lead change your organisation. Get started by visiting us at corecentric.com. That's C-O-R-C-E-N-T-R-I-C dot com.